Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Genzel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is an interview series in which I talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From cult movie directors to character actors, from seasoned veterans to brilliant newcomers, from celebrated artists to filmmakers who haven't received the recognition they deserve, these folks have lots of fascinating stories to tell. Today's guest is screenwriter Kevin Droney, who adapted not one but two computer games for the big screen back in the 90s, Mortal Kombat and Wing Commander. Mortal Kombat, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson and based on the fighting game series that was known for its ultra-violence, was released in 1995 and was a huge success, spending three weeks at the number one spot of the U.S. box office. Unfortunately, Wing Commander, released in 1999, was not as successful. In fact, it was a failure both critically and commercially, even though it remains to this day the only game adaptation directed by the creator of the game series himself, Chris Roberts, whose Wing Commander sci-fi action series was a gaming phenomenon throughout the 90s and continuously pushed the technological boundaries of computer gaming. In our interview, Kevin discusses how he created the story for Mortal Kombat, a game that didn't really have a plot, and how he focused on the mythological aspects of the game's background. He talks about how Linton Ashby kept ad-libbing lines and confusing his fellow actors, and he also talks about how his love for the Bruce Lee movies influenced the script. Kevin also shares his memories of developing the Wing Commander script together with Chris Roberts and exploring his sci-fi universe, and he discusses how the script got rewritten without his involvement and why the finished film doesn't really represent his original screenplay. We also talked a little bit about another film that Kevin wrote, a drama starring Raul Julia and Laura Dern called Down Came a Blackbird, a captivating serious story about a clinic for survivors of torture that shows Kevin's versatility as a screenwriter. For more on the video game movies of the 90s, please check out our other interviews here on Talking Pictures, including an interview with Rocky Morton, co-director of Super Mario Brothers, an interview with Steven D'Souza, writer and director of Street Fighter, and with Jim Yukich, the director of Double Dragon. If you speak German, there's also episode number 38 of our Lichtspielplatz podcast with in-depth discussions of all these movies. You can find us at talkingpicturespodcast.com. So here's Talking Pictures with screenwriter Kevin Droney, first of all, discussing his background as a writer before he got involved with Mortal Kombat. Practically from high school on, from the age of 17 on, I wanted to be a TV or movie writer, so I sort of thought that was a goal, but I didn't, of course, just plunge into that. Uh, I did study theater uh, and English at uh, my first university, Santa Clara University, where I got my Bachelor of Arts in English with a minor in theater, and I really fell in love with playwriting. started doing a lot of plays, very short plays, but I would get to put them on for $10, you'd put them on, and, and it was fun. It was, and it, it encouraged me and it encouraged my mentors to say, well, you should go on to graduate school and, and study playwriting. Uh, in the meantime, I went into the Peace Corps for two years, and so I was in uh, West Africa, in Ivory Coast, West Africa, and I started started getting uh, ideas for uh, what became my first play. I then did get into UCLA uh, with, in the Master of Fine Arts program. So I studied uh, uh, all aspects of theater, but especially playwriting. So my first love, I guess, would have been playwriting. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe one can make a living doing that. That turns out to be not really true. <laughs> <laughs> Even the great playwrights in this country and in England, you know, they also sell screenplays. Mm -hmm. uh, I eventually 
um, had a couple of plays done, but eventually I did realize uh, that I was going to have to get into screenwriting and um, in order to support my small but growing family. In the meantime, between all that, I went to France and I lived in France for six years. Mm-hmm. So living in France is not a really good way to launch your career in Los Angeles. So <laughs> I started writing I started writing a book instead. And I did, I wrote the book, uh, the book uh, was translated and it actually got a good publication by a very reputable publisher in, uh, in Paris. And that in turn sort of caught the attention of some of my friends who were making a living back here. And they suggested that eventually I moved back, which I did. And I got into uh, American television first, uh, five different television series, starting as a lowly staff writer. And, and my last job was uh, as a co-head writer. I was a supervising producer, but I was one of two writers on a, a show that went international. That show was called uh, Highlander. Mm-hmm. And I launched that. That that I only mention it because it had a lot of European components to it. And about that time, I thought it would be nice to really start getting back into getting into theatrical uh, film writing, which I did. I sold the script to a, again, a reputable producer. And we used that script to show me around. And I was picked up by the people at Mortal Kombat who really liked that script. And they said, well, come in and pitch. Mm-hmm. So I pitched that. And uh, I I had like, I don't know. I was working on another project at the time, and I, I just sat down and I looked at this, this, you know, game, and I said, well, what can I pitch? So I went in and pitched it. They liked it. They uh, took me in uh, to the studio, New Line Studio, and I pitched it to them, and they liked it, and they hired me. It was the fastest process I've ever seen. Apparently, they wow. went through fourteen writers before they found somebody who told them what the story was. As I was, they explained later, it's like, yes, it's a great game. It's wonderful. And I said, I don't know much about the game, but I think this is a good story if we tell it this way. And and basically that's how I launched. I then was hired over the last, the next 15 years, was either hired or sold. I've lost count, about eight scripts, uh, several, a couple more of which got made. And, uh, that that is and i also started doing uh mini series getting back into not cable television so much as premium showtime uh, television uh hbo put pitching to these people and sold a number of longer form uh projects so that's uh you know in a real nutshell you know 15 or 20 years of of writing and making a living doing it mm-hmm. and uh, that brings us up to what I'm doing these days, which is primarily doing, uh, uh, oh, I'm back doing plays. I actually have a play which we're trying to get up, a professional version of that. And I'm also writing uh, novels again. So oh, it's come full, circle. come full circle. <laughs> so the, the novel that you mentioned, I think, is Le Missionnaire, right? I, I, I saw that's correct, that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's only available in French. Uh, yes, that's true. That's true. We tried to get it <clears throat> published in English. And uh, strangely enough, and uh, got far, got pretty far until somebody uh, very, very high up the ladder uh, who had bought the original company uh, said, well, maybe his next novel, you know, we're not sure about this one. And I, again, I did write another novel. And then I moved back to the States going, I really need to make a living doing this. And mm. um, I made a little money at 
doing the French version, which was all over France for that whole summer. And that was fun. But as you pointed out, it was in French. And I'm going, I need to break into the American English Irish markets. And mm. and uh, and I, I won't say I was discouraged. I just got to the point where I, I obviously can make a living writing television. And that's what I'm going to stick with. Now I'm back. I've been three novels and three and a half novels, and I'm trying to see what I can do um, to get them published. But it published, again, by a reputable publisher. I'm not really into self-publishing at all. I just yeah. don't quite understand why I would do that. So so that's, um, that's Le Missionnaire was about experiences I had in West Africa. Uh, I obviously fictionalized a great deal of it because I was not a missionary, but... Uh, that was, uh, I thought that was a much more interesting person, a person who had that kind of a commitment rather than a, a, a young man who was going to be there for two years and then go home. So, so that's why I chose that. But it was, it was, the story was based about some real events that actually happened to, to me and to others, hmm. uh, in the, where I was staying. Yeah, it's too bad it's not available in English because I, I, I really like to read it, but you know, I had three yeah. years, three years of French in high school and that just doesn't mm -hmm. cut it when it comes to reading a novel <laughs> yeah no it is frustrating and uh, it was one of those little frustrations in your life you go okay if they're not going to publish it i i kind of move on and i did uh and it was very hard to the i had an agent a very good new york agent and he would he couldn't understand it either he was like i don't understand these people because mm -hmm. he liked it he had read of course the english version the the manuscript and he thought it was fine now that was a younger man's novel. I would like to think that in the, in the intervening decades, I've actually gotten better at it, but, you know, and I think I have, but it was, it was exciting. It was an exciting time. Mm -hmm. uh, watching your small children, you know, walk by a bookstore and see your book and all of the, uh, uh, you know, oh, and five or six uh, facings, as they call it in French. And so, oh, that's daddy's book, you know, so that was fun. That was fun. That was my first professional uh, success, if you will, and then you know came back and started into the film industry. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Mortal Kombat. Um, you already said that you didn't really know a lot about the game. Um, mm -hmm. uh, were you familiar with the game at all? Uh, did you know what the sure. game was about? Well, I asked my son, and he said, "Dad, it's about a bunch of guys kicking ass. You're going to have to make up a story." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, okay." And uh, I was put in the way of this by my agent because I am, among other things, or was, among other things, a karate guy. I had done a lot of karate, and my agent had. And for some reason, even though I was in the process of writing a very serious movie, which also got made, uh, he said he thought I might be good for this. And I thought, well, that's a strange idea. And then when I got home, uh, my wife had received a bunch of faxes of what the game was about. And she looked at it and said, you know, you're really very good at mythology with your degree in English and, and everything. And this is really a mythological journey. And I thought about that. And she had a degree in, in, uh, in French literature. And I thought she was probably right. So I sat down and literally in the middle of the night, I'm writing the journey of the reluctant hero and, and following it uh, through to its completion. And... The next morning when I went in to pitch it, having, I think I went over to an arcade. Remember arcades? Mm, you know what yeah. an arcade is? I went over to an arcade and I just sort of stood behind, without creeping them out, I stood behind some teenagers who were playing the game. So I got some sense of the game. And of course, I had a very clear idea of who the avatars were, but not of who they were. There was mm. no sense of 
deep characterization. So I decided I'd better add that. And I pitched it literally about 24 hours after I got the idea, thinking, oh, what the heck? Yeah. And I went in saying, well, you know, I don't know the game very well, but I have read all of Bullfinch's mythology, and I'm seeing some very clear mythological trends here, and here's how what the story is. And I told them a story for about 45 minutes or an hour. And the next week I repeated that to the studio, and they said, you're hired. And I asked much later, I said, why did you hire me? There were 14 other writers, and I happen to know a couple of them were A-list writers. I saw their names on a list of people they were being interviewed. And they said, well, you were the only one who told us what the story was. So, <laughs> and I guess that's true. You can get caught up in the action, which, of course, I completely honored. And because I'm a karate guy, we went around uh, after we hired Pat Johnson. And Pat Johnson was my karate teacher. He was my karate you know, mentor, if you will. And he was also doing films. So we actually went around to various studios with these six degree black belts teaching studios and learned various methods of how to fight. So uh, I really tried to honor that too by saying, okay, this this person is going to fight this way and this character is gonna fight this way. Of course, some characters just freeze you, you know, which I thought was kind of fun, mm -hmm. but I wanted it to, to be as realistic as I could in some of the fights. So between trying to create characters, real characters, and then trying to be honor the game, which is, it's about fighting. It's about karate fighting. Um, tried to put that together into a whole that would be uh, uh, holistic, if you will, a holistic movie. And uh, people seemed to like it. They were put me on a very fast schedule. One of the reasons I was hired was that I uh, wrote television extensively. And they said, we need this fast. And I said, how fast? And they said, very fast. So I wrote a first draft over Christmas. And based upon, no, I wrote the, I remember, I wrote the treatment over Christmas. It was a 45-page treatment. And based upon the treatment, they greenlit the movie, which was very unusual. Uh, New Line said, we, we want to put this in a schedule. And, uh, and they actually started paying for some of the, well, they're not effects. They started paying to build an audio animatronic robot named Kano. Uh, no, Goro, 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 Goro. Yeah. yeah, and I, um, so it was, it was a very unusual way to write a movie in that there were people waiting for pages, and it had already been greenlit, and when I turned in the first draft, I, I think it was sometime in January, and we were in production by that summer, uh -huh. so it was, it was an unusual, unusual and very fast process for once, it doesn't usually happen that way. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. It's interesting because, um, you know, there have been a couple of, of video game movies before Mortal Kombat, and they all yeah. are games which didn't really have a lot of story, so they tried to invent some kind of story why they are doing this, why they are fighting, um, like Double Dragon and Street Fighter. I mean, basically Street mm -hmm. Fighter is, is very similar to Mortal Kombat in a way. Um, yeah. And the way you approach Mortal Kombat is the first time that... The, the screenplay just basically takes the essence of the of the game, which is fighting um, and the tournament, and and uh, creates a story out of that one. Street Fighter didn't have a, a, a you know, th there wasn't street fighting in the movie, and there wasn't a, a kind of tournament in the movie, um, even though that was the essence of the game. So, 
That's that's very true, and I, I didn't see that. I didn't see any of the previous ones, and I was really determined to make sure. You know, I had an eleven-year-old son, and I said, "I want this to be fun, and I want the kids who are playing the game." And they were mostly kids. I saw, I approached this as a kids' movie, and uh, much to my surprise, later on when I was talking to UCLA film students, they would walk up to me and go. I'd be talking about another film and they'd go, you know, we saw Mortal Kombat three times and I'm looking at these 20 year olds going, why? Because <laughs> you know, I wrote it for my I wrote it for my 11 year old son and I wanted two things. I wanted it to be PG-13, which, you know, the reference rating, I didn't want it to be so violent and gory that the kids who most wanted to see it could not see it in the United States. And and secondly, I did think that there was a lot of humor to be had uh, there if you just had some fun with the characters. And again, this helped develop the characters. I mean, Johnny Cage is, of course, the the, the jokester all the time. But even uh, the Robin Shu character, uh, I, Lou, I, I wanted him to have a sardonic, dry wit. And I think that really worked. And I was very happy to see many years later, J.J. Abrams and others sort of when they when they approached a universe of fic, you know fictional comic book characters they still tried to get humor into it and i think that's really really important you know get guardians of the galaxies too there's always a lot of humor and i i really thought that was one of the key elements uh if i could sort of gently make fun of this this whole process of oh we're going to have a big tournament and at the same time take it seriously it, that it would work and i think i was right about that and some of the actors understood that really well. Uh, they a lot they got it. Uh, Christian Christian Lambert, who I had actually worked with on on Highlander, was the Lord Raiden, and he completely understood how to do this. And I, I just loved his performance. I, I got a big kick out of it. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, uh, those were the the two key elements. And I actually went in saying that I said if this isn't going to be a PG thirteen movie, I said I'm not terribly interested in doing it. Not that I haven't written R-rated stuff, but that is not the audience we were going for. Mm-hmm. We were going for a much younger audience. And it's interesting. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, one of the selling points, I think, of the movies was um, of, of the games was that they were really, really violent. Like they had all these yeah. finishing moves. Um, I think it was Sub Zero who ripped the spine out of some of the opponents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was actually wondering uh, how many discussions there were about how violent the movie should be or um, what you could do with that sort of violence. I sort of laid down a marker, I guess, in the very, I mean, it was uh, the first meeting and I was talking to the producers and they had read an extremely violent script that I had <laughs> sold, the one we're referring to, uh, which got me a lot of work actually. So I'm sure they were expecting me to say, oh, yeah, we can do this. And I mean, I, I actually had people reading that script back for other reasons and going, you decapitated him. So I, I'm not afraid of violence. But again, you have to respect the audience and who is going to come to see this movie. And a, I don't think kids should be subjected to a level of violence that you and I can be subjected to with no problem. And B, I, I just didn't think it would work very well. I thought it would be too dark and, and it would be taken too seriously. 
And again, going back to people, you know, who've had enormous success since then, the J.J. Abrams type people of the world uh, or uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and those type of movies, they all seem to understand that, yeah, you have to you have to kind of look at this and at the same time step back and from an adult's point of view and go, this is kind of funny. And and yet give the give the kids the kind of intense emotional thrill that they're looking for and to whatever extent one can do that in a movie that is 96 minutes long and is has a lot of very very strange characters in it some of whom i really enjoyed writing for but um you know that's what you try and do mm. and it's it, it doesn't it isn't that far from writing a good play or writing uh, a novel or in in that if you don't have decent characters, people who you go, I sort of understand who this person is, as opposed to an avatar who has really special powers, you're not going to succeed. Hmm. You mentioned you mentioned uh, uh, one of the films, uh, Road Warrior. I, wasn't that with Raul Julia? Uh, was Street that Fighter with Raul Julia. Yeah, Street yeah. Fighter was with Raul yeah. Julia. Yeah, Raul Julia had just done that film when he came and did another film of mine. He did he did my film, the serious film I was telling you about, called Down Came a Blackbird, which mm-hmm. eventually ended up on, on Showtime. It was also got a theatrical release in Europe, but uh, he would talk about, about that experience a little bit. And uh, he also talked about that experience with the writer whom I later met uh, at a writer's guild function. But R- Raul Julia is a consummate actor, and no matter what role you put him in, he is going to try and find the essence of his character and who that character is and why he's doing what he's doing. He's, he did that his whole life. And uh, it's, so it's very interesting. And I, I do approach that with the seriousness that the actors do. I've never met an actor who goes, oh, you know, who cares? It's just a video game. Or who cares? It's just a TV cop drama. They don't, they never, ever, ever approach it that way. They take it with great seriousness. And any writer worth the salt should do the same thing, mm-hmm. which is what do these people really want? Why are they here? What is not only what is their purpose to me, but what what do they see as their purpose? And if you put that sort of thing into a mythological setting, such as uh, Mortal Kombat was, which was clearly using the great, many of the great old ancient myths of uh, various types, then, then you can, I, Using that formula, that formula has worked for thousands of years, and I, I just looked at it that if I do this, I think this will work, and people believe me, and I, I think largely it did work. There were some moments I was not happy with, but what can you do, you know? <laughs> yeah, I've read one story where um, I think Linton Ashby told that one, where you met him at a party, and you had a date with him, and... Um, you sort of said, okay, look, this is the guy who ruined my script because he, he did so many ad-libs. I never, I never said that. He's, he's, he's ad-libbing that part. I said he didn't ruin my script. He did do a lot of ad-libs. I think, I think he may have said that, and I laughed, uh, because I actually liked a lot of his ad-libs. They replaced other lines that were also humorous. But, uh, but uh, Ashby also came up with some stuff, which I thought was very funny. And when people said, oh, you know, it's not in the script, I said, I know, but it really works. It's really good. They were just little moments. He had the whole bit with the suitcases, which I thought was hilarious. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of physical humor that uh, that uh, I, I liked. He did write other. He did do other things, much of which was cut because he was ad libbing too much. I think more to the point is some of the actors were or irritated by 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 him because they had lines to give and he wasn't giving them the lines they needed to say their lines, which is an old trick. Uh, and 
uh, was, uh, I will not mention the actors who were not happy about it, but they told me personally. And I was on the set those days. And I said, well, I'll do what I can. Actually, I was called down to the set to control them one day. I literally was called down to the set really? by the producers. And and I sat with, with Robin and I sat with some people and, and I said, well, let me see what, what, what we can do here. Because there are lines that are very important that be said. But he, for all of his ad-libbing, some of which you know, did take this, this it in this different directions. Most of it that made it into the movie were pretty good. And that's why they stayed. And mm -hmm. that's not unusual either in comedies, obvi obviously. It's a little less unusual uh, in a drama. So he, he thought he was in a comedy and that's how he treated it. You know? <laughs> yeah, but and it Robin's fits his character in a way, right? Yeah, um, I is, mean, he's a, yes. his character is a showboat, so... Exactly. I mean, <laughs> no, he he may have that that you know I, as usual. I I doubt very seriously that I if I said it, I said it facetiously, yeah. that he ruined the script because I actually thought he brought a lot to the party. Um, but uh, but at the same time, you do and I I'm, I think what I might have said is I thought my jokes were funny too. You know, <laughs> and some of them got in and some of them didn't. Uh, if you wanted to see my jokes, you had to look at some of the other characters, and they, they you know they tended to stick with the script a little more than Ashton did. So, but yeah, he was he was a good guy. I, I would, if I were a TV guy, and there was someone with that tendency, uh, I would say, you know, this is this is a writer's medium, and we don't have time to decide whether your lines are good or not. So we, you know, we can't fix it in editing. We have eight days to put this show on, and I'd appreciate it if you stuck to the script. But that would be me putting my supervising producer's hat on, and I didn't have that hat. Nor would, nor would I have used that hat. And I wasn't there for a lot of it. I was in, um, in Los Angeles and I was in Vancouver shooting another film and I wasn't in Thailand. I was taking, while well, I was interviewing, uh, talking with Laura Dern about one film, I got a call from Thailand. They had a problem on the set and they were always asking me to, well, can you do this? Because we can't do this, what can we say? So there's a lot of uh, process of rewriting right as you go. In a, in a, especially in a movie that has a very, very short shooting schedule. This movie was shot for or originally $21 million. And then I think they, they realized that they had really shortchanged this and they put some of the scenes back that had been cut for budget reasons, which everyone knows, no, this is a good scene. And then they asked me to rewrite new scenes, which I did do. So that was interesting. That was an interesting process. Um, there is a, a novelization um, of the film, and it actually has a couple of scenes that um, are not in the finished movie. I'm, I'm sure they were part of the script at some point. They probably were. Yeah, I didn't write. I don't think. I, no, I didn't write that. So somebody else wrote that. Uh, I think I talked to the guy who wrote it, and he he had he interviewed me. This is going way back. I do remember having a conversation with, uh, I think it was on, on that movie, about the novelization. And it was very amicable. I had no interest in doing it. And uh, he was interested. He may have had, I'm sure he had access to probably my first or second script. And there are a lot of things in there that got cut out for budget reasons. And then we put in other things. And some things we just never did get to work correctly. I mean, I kept trying to figure out how to get a really cool fight with Goro. And uh, and it became uh, it became difficult because uh, they didn't have the budget to do it, in my opinion, correctly. So that was unfortunate because I really liked the guys who had created this character. They spent a lot of time on this puppet, this giant puppet. 
and uh, they were great. And we were saying, well, what, what are the facial expressions? How can we have him do this? And I, I had a much more uh, sophisticated character in mind if a, a four-armed character can be sophisticated. I had him as a prince, which he is in, in, in the game. I wasn't making anything up. And I just thought he, there was some more interesting side to him than, than what ended up on film. But that's, you know, I was not the director, and that was not my decision to make. Mm -hmm. So how happy are you with the finished film? Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy with the results of the finished film. It's about 60, 70% of what I would have liked to have seen. And some of it turned out really, really good. Uh, others, as I said, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to talk about the, the great lines of dialogue. I'm talking about action sequences, some of which were fixed. We reshot them. Uh, they came in and kind of startled uh, several of us on the production team. And people turned to me and says, um, what can we do here? And I actually rewrote some scenes and Robin Shu got involved. And we actually added about 10 or 15 minutes back into a film that had been cut to the bone. And by, the, by New Line, who didn't quite understand what they had at some point. And when they actually saw it, they went, oh, that's what Kevin meant when he said the film was too short. Because I told them, I said, I'm a TV guy. I'm telling you, this film is too short. You keep cutting scenes. <laughs> Uh, that we need for this movie, and they, they agreed. And uh, I was hired back on, and I spent a, a few more weeks rewriting, and, and Robin took over a lot of the choreography. And uh, those were good scenes. Those were some of the best uh, scenes in the movie, and they were fun. They were fun. Mm -hmm. But that's, that was, I don't think New Line was quite aware of how popular this movie would be if it was done right. And I, I was, I knew that there was a huge buzz out there for it. But this is the people who later did Lord of the Rings and spared no budget were cutting and cutting and cutting. And then they said, well, we'll give you a few million dollars back to, to fix it. Mm. And they did. So it, when it's done that way, uh, it's it's a little hard to say, wow, this is just a, you know, it was it was a difficult process. But, and I was again working on another film I would literally go from Vancouver to Toronto, and it was it was very interesting, uh, and to Los Angeles, and I, I was doing different different things at the same time, but enjoying both. It was, as I said to somebody, I just left a set where I was talking to a four-armed monster, seven-foot four-armed monster, and I was talking to Vanessa Redgrave and Raul Julia, <laughs> and they were like, what? And I'm going, yeah, it's been an interesting summer. <laughs> so so that, was my, that was my summer. Of uh, Mortal Kombat and Down Came a Blackbird. Yeah. yeah so, uh, what other questions about process and cetera would you like to get into? Um, one thing I'm curious about, I don't know if that played into your creation of the screenplay, is um, but you said you you were the karate guy in a way. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. If the Asian cinema of that time sort of played a part into um, the way you wrote the script, the way you um, sort of uh, created the concept for the story. Yes, I think so. I, I When I was living in Paris, I went and saw all of Bruce Lee's films, which are, as films, not very good uh, because they were done on a very tight budget. But the karate was pretty amazing, and it was fun. It was fun to watch. And I thought the whole tournament was following sort of the rules of Asian cinema, which is there's 20 of us, and we're going to attack you, but we're going to do it one person at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, and the tournament was very much like that. I mean, that was the formalized thing is you didn't gang up on somebody. And so, yeah, 
And I think the other thing was to try and find worthy opponents for Bruce Lee, which was very hard to do. Whereas, and this was very exciting, we had some of the best karateka people in Southern California. I mean, really good people. And they were recommended by these grand masters. And they came in and uh, Pat Johnson, who was, again, had taught me karate, but he was also a film fight director. I think he did Los Angeles Story and he did the uh, the turtle movie, you know, the um, uh, Ninja Turtles. I think he did that before before doing Mortal Kombat. And uh, he he managed to hire. And, and the other person who was very instrumental in this was a, a guy named Chris, uh, Francois Petit, who was a French karate guy. And he played one of the characters. But he and I became good friends. We'd known he, he, he'd been in Africa about the same time I had. He was in the French Foreign Legion, and we became pals. And he was very good at, at putting together people who, when you got to those scenes, that was really interesting. I mean, you were actually seeing top people, not some actor who had a few karate moves. So that was fun. That was different from, in, in a sense, that was different from the... Um, the early Asian movies. Robin Shu brought another influence to it. He brought the Hong Kong influence in. And at first we didn't have that in the movie, but then we did um, when we did the reshoots and we said, Robin, knock yourself out. So we had a lot more flying through the air for, you know, on cable stuff, that kind of thing, which he had been doing in, uh, excuse me, that, that I would say Robin was definitely an influence in the later stages, and I myself was very familiar with a lot of those films, most of whom were incredibly boring. You'd like fast forward, if you had could, to, to the action sequences. And I was saying, well, I don't want them to fast forward, so let's see what we can do here. Mm-hmm. And I do think there was, a, there was a richer texture to a lot of the karate, not all of it. We didn't have all of the uh, parts you know, were with really good karate people who knew what they were doing, but we made them look like they knew what they were doing. And they worked for like six weeks. They did six weeks of training with uh, Pat and with Robin to to try and bring them up so they could do some of the moves. So that was fun. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a technical aspect that, you know, you don't usually have to deal with with actors, which is, oh, and we have to teach you this specific skill just well enough, at least well enough so that you look like you know what you're doing, because you're going to be up against stuntmen who know exactly what they're doing, and they're very good at it. You know? mm. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the movie was a huge success. It was the first video game movie that was actually really a huge hit, um, but it wasn't very popular with the critics, um, and I was just mm-hmm. wondering what, what kind of response did you, you got, and also from, from uh, people who played the games. What's well, the critics, I would not expect the critics to be loud. There were a few actually good people who understood it. In Los Angeles, there was a critic who went, yeah, I get what he's doing. I get what Paul and Kevin are doing. You know, I think those were his exact words. And, you know, and he, I, I'm not going to try and quote him, but he understood. And Paul Anderson said the same thing. He says, I really want to do the kind of movies like that I loved uh, from the 50s, like, uh, the claymation monster skeleton fights and that sort of thing. And he would reference that. And I was referencing, you know, Beowulf. <laughs> I was referencing, I was referencing, you know, what, and, and Pat Johnson and I came together and, and we knew that there was a, a the final scene should be, and it was no, 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 we can't do that. But at the end they did do that. 
they they had it where all these different people pop up and we get these different fighting styles. And again, this is all highly technical. But my feeling is if I can deliver to the kids who came to the movie to the movie because they like the game uh, and the other interesting thing I sort of wrote, I said, if adults come to this game, to this movie, and have never seen the game, I want them to enjoy themselves. If they're bringing their 12-year-old son, and I actually sat next to a woman who brought a 12-year-old son, and he saw it, and then he turns, well, what do you think? She goes, you know, it was, it was, there was a lot more there than I thought. So that, that was really the reaction I was going for in that movie. And I was happy to have a couple of critics who liked it, those who didn't, didn't. And then there are people who uh, they they are so into the game that there's just absolutely no possibility of any deviance whatsoever. And uh, they could have done it better. And I, I, I pay no if you if you believe them when they like you, you have to believe them when they hate you. I was told by, you know, a, a world renowned playwright when I was just beginning my career. And I think that's true. If you believe them when they love you, you have to believe them when they hate you. So the, the idea is to just kind of go, sure. Uh, I wrote the movie and about 70 percent of it is what I like. And we can get into that when we talk about Wing Commander uh, and and the other 30 percent. Well, that's just the way Hollywood films get done these days is they get changed around a lot by either the actor or well, usually the actor or production costs or, or something else. And you go, well, that didn't work as well as my script did. But if you're in this industry, you just have to accept that as a win. And, uh, you know, there are other movies, for example, the same year, uh, Down Came a Blackbird came out and it was huge, huge critical success. I mean, financially, you know, probably put one of my kids through college as opposed to Mortal Kombat that put two of my kids through college. But at, at the same time, uh, I think the critics accepting it, understanding what I was doing was more important to me there because it was a highly personal. It was it's based on a play. So it was dialogue driven very, very serious subject. And that's where I think the critics can also make a difference. I mean, if a critic likes something in a small little film, uh, then people are more likely to go see it. In Mortal Kombat, they don't care. You know, <laughs> They're going to show up. And if they don't like it, then they don't show up again. And I think the real key was they showed up and they showed up and they, sometimes they'd see the movie three times. And then when it came out on tape, they bought all the tapes when it came out on DVD. They they bought the DVD when it came out on Blu-ray. They went out and bought the Blu-ray. I can tell you that for an absolute fact because I you know, now they're going to do a remake, and uh, it uh, it made everybody a lot of money for for a small little twenty-six million dollar movie. There's a lot of people who are still cashing checks, and I am one of them for that movie. And I'm I'm surprised. This is a twenty-five-year-old movie. I have no clear idea why people are still watching it, but they are. And that's, uh, I don't know if that's a mystery or not, but it, it is an enduring quality of that particular film, uh, which I, you know, I went at film school, I was taught that films are of a certain era, uh, you know, and then they're, they're, they're dépassé. You can't see them anymore. You can't see them in the same light. So why this is still somewhat of a success, I do not know, but they're going to remake it, see what they do with that. That would be interesting. Yeah. I'm glad they are because I got a royalty for that. It was in my contract. Oh, if we remake wow. it, yeah. and I'm going, thank you. I can, wow, I appreciate that's... that. <laughs> 25 <laughs> years later, do you believe that? That's crazy. It's you know? amazing. It is. Yeah, amazing. I, just re... and I still get, I, just... I still get substantial amounts of money every year from people who are streaming it. So 
Wow. What can you say? Some somewhere out there, people are watching this movie after all these years. I just recently saw an article that said, "Well, after all these years, Mortal Kombat is still the best video game adaptation uh, that has come to the screen." I, I, you know, years ago, about five years ago, six years ago, a UCLA professor, friend of mine, brought me into a room. Now you look around the room, and most of these young people have not been born. When this movie came out, and they and I thought, okay, this is this is going to be the old guy talking about an old film, and but they were very enthusiastic about it. So there's something there, and I so strongly suspect it's the mythological element that I I started this whole conversation with, you know, the reluctant hero and the quests, and that's it's a movie about quests. It's a quest movie, and for all of the silliness and deliberate silliness in there. Um, they still were responding to it, and I was kind of surprised. I mean, I I expected a much tougher room than I got. Uh, you know, the only question they ever asked me is, "Did you write the second one?" I said, "No, I did not. <laughs> no, no, absolutely had nothing to do with that." You know? So, were you uh, approached to write the second one? Well, that was their mistake because uh, it cost them a lot of money. I was supposed to be re approached, and they didn't bother. And when I say they, I mean, and I'm going to get very specific here. New Line wanted me, uh, and they thought I did a really good job. A stand-up job was the word. And for whatever reason, Larry Kazanoff, the producer, uh, wanted to go. I think he wanted more control, which is very weird because when he hired me, he said, you know, I want you to follow your imagination and I'm giving you control and feel free to say anything you want and you'll be on the set as much as possible. So I was very surprised uh, that I wasn't offered it. And uh, then uh, we sued them and got a lot of money and uh, and moved on. I, I was writing Wing Commander at that point. It was like, okay. And they didn't, you know, Paul, I don't know if Paul was approached, but Paul was already doing a $90 million movie. So I'm guessing if he was, he turned it down. And they hired the DP. And I never saw the movie, to be honest with you. I've only heard about it. And uh, I did meet one of the writers and um, a nice man. But uh, I would have done it. I would have been happy to take it. I had actually written uh, uh, in my head an outline for what I thought the second one would be. But I did not share that with them <laughs> because they didn't, they didn't hire me. Yeah. So it was one of the odder moments, you know, because I really thought we were getting along. I mean, this I don't think there were personality clashes of any kind that would have been a normal explanation. And it is what it is. I happen to think that the first one is a big success and the second one not. So there it is. It also destroyed the franchise, which I think was really too bad. This could have been a three or four movie franchise easily. Uh, I would I might have done the second one. I would have, then I would have moved on. But. I never quite understood that. Neither did New Line. Uh, they were puzzled, and they told my agent that. My agent was puzzled. My lawyer was puzzled. We were all, and I said, "Well, in which case, let's enforce the contract." And you know, I very rarely get paid for something I don't write, but I did there. So. <laughs> very odd. You know, I don't know if we want to get that in. This is we're getting into the nitty gritty of Hollywood contracts at this point. But that was that was a it was a disappointment. But at the same time, I was very busy. And um, I was like, okay, sorry. You know, have fun storming the castle. <laughs> so you said you were, you were already working on, on Wing Commander at that point. So yes. um, I suspect that you got involved with Wing Commander because Mortal Kombat was such a success 
that when the next video game or computer game adaptation came up, that your name was on top of a list where you say, okay, we've got to approach Kevin Droney because he knows what he's doing. I think that's probably true. I also think that, and this is the, the difference between Mortal Kombat and, and Wing Commander. In Mortal Kombat, I never had any direct contact with the creators of the game, who are great. They, they did a great job. But they had absolutely no input other than what they had already done into what, what should be in the movie. On the other hand, I was approached by Chris Roberts, who created uh, Wing Commander. And he wanted to do a movie of it. And I was brought on the set of the shooting of the Wing Commander game, uh, which is used live actors, including some wonderful, some really good actors, uh, uh, which was a very unusual approach. And I was, I was uh, very impressed by him. He wanted to direct this movie. And this, this would have been the second time I was working with a 29-year-old with very little experience directing movies. Paul had done one small, very successful small film in England, uh, which had nothing to do with action of any kind. And, and Chris hadn't directed any movies. But he was doing these little green screen scenes with very good actors. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So I approached him with my take on it. And he really much, he, he liked it. And again, no, I, I gave him some very strong suggestions uh, about what couldn't be in the movie. But I also told him what I thought could be. And as a result, we signed a contract. And he and I did work very closely together for about a year. And then the whole project went away. It just, we had a good producer. We had Chris. Uh, we were trying to line up a, a good uh, studio. And then um, it, it just went into development hell. Uh, and I was no longer involved with it. Was hired to write two more movies. So I was busy. And, I'm go and suddenly I hear, oh, they're going to do the movie. I think I was approached by the new producer once. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I'm being very honest, I didn't think much of him. I thought, you know, I'd had a, we'd had a really good producer whom I knew who they were and they were very competent. And this guy, I'm going, what? Uh, and I gave him some ideas. I said, sure, if you want me to do some rewrites, but they didn't. He, he brought on someone I have never heard of before or since. And he, they, he showed up when they started shooting the film uh, I'm all, I'm hearing this from like Freddie Prince Jr. and people like that who told me this later. They said, suddenly we show up and we, we all hired on with your script and suddenly we're given this totally rewritten script. So it was, the first part was very rewarding experience and then I'm working with Chris Roberts, the creator of the game, who really seemed to appreciate my input and at the same time I'm going, well, thank you for this I kind of cool world. I actually loved the whole, it's World War II in space, you know, which was very different from a lot of the games out there. And I, and I made the wing commander a woman. I thought that would be cool. And this was again, 20, 20, 20 years ago, 20, almost 25 years ago. So I wrote it in 1995 and I thought this would be fun. And again, humor was, I thought an important part of it and uh, the characters and, We've got some really good actors, again, some really good actors. And then they they kind of wrecked the script. So I was not happy with the script at all. And at the same time, all he did was mess up my dialogue and change scenes around and add scenes, which were cut out of the movie. They they tried to they tried to sell the writer's guild that, oh yeah, this is and and they weren't in the movie. These scenes were so repetitive and and derivative that they were cut. 
Uh, when the studio got a hold of it, they were not happy, but they decided to release it and see what would happen. And what was happened was uh, what I predicted was that it's going to get, it's not going to do well, and it didn't. And again, the you know, the guess who guess who made a lot of money, you know, uh, and I. Yeah. Thank you, but uh, you know, but it's always discouraging when you see something that you wrote with love and affection, and th to see it kind of destroyed. And I never understood again why why someone would do that. And this producer has, a lot to, you know, this producer has a lot to answer for. And again, I have never heard his name again either. He's one of these people that pop up and you go, what, what possessed you to get such a good cast based upon one script and then show up and and do a bait and switch. And that's exactly what I, I was told that by, by Freddie Prince Jr., as a matter of fact, uh, at, this, at the uh, uh, premiere. <laughs> so that was, that was one of those situations where you go, wow, you know. And, and they did change. I had an opening sequence, which I think would have made the movie uh, right then and there. And I took it from Carl Sagan, and uh, I had an asteroid world. It was really a cool idea based upon science. And they went back to an idea that Chris had had originally, which was very murky and hard to see what was going on. And uh, so even technically, you know, technically he's not Steven Spielberg, but he could have he could have done this well, but he didn't have good support. I don't think he had good support. He had some good he had a good DP. He had some a good cutter, but they did what they could with it. Yeah. It's, you know, but yeah, uh, technically, again, it was like looking at characters in the game and there were like the chief villains i think the kill rathi are like electrified cats in the game I just you know and i said no, no I, that's just going to be a bad laugh from day one and i had an idea let's keep the feline quality and then i created i said and let's not ever see them clearly because they breathe this murky green atmosphere and i and 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 I think that worked. They did do that. Uh, Chris did do that. And I think that helped you from going, what the heck is this? What am I looking at? A bunch of cats, you know, who stuck their fingers in a socket. So uh, you, you find, you're trying to, well, in a game, again, you can get away with a lot of stuff. But if you're going to make it menacing. And I also had, in that case, a tremendous backlog of history of World War II, my own, my own self. My father was a veteran, a combat veteran. I was always fascinated by it. Uh, Chris clearly was a much younger man. And I thought, well, let's go that way. Let's really do the submarine and the depth charges. And let's do all of these things that people are looking for in an iconic World War II movie. And let's see if that works. And I think the action sequences probably did work. It was the interstices and the the scenes in between, and see, I'd have a scene that I wrote at the beginning, and I'd I'd see I saw it in the final script with another character, but the same dialogue later on, and it was very odd. Chris later yeah. told me at one point he got really tired of all the changes, and the second half of the movie was mine, which I think is true. But yeah. by that time, it was you know people decide whether they like a movie was <laughs> ten minutes, not in the, in the second hour, so. I was, uh, it was an unfortunate circumstance for Chris because I don't think he got to do another movie. And, uh, and it was unfortunate for me because you always like your movies to be successful. But I had absolutely no control over, when, once it went over to Luxembourg, I think it got shot in. It was, you know, it was, uh, it was three years later and completely out of my hands. So I saw the final, I fought, saw the final with everyone else and went, wow, okay, what happened? <laughs> you know, so, any other questions about Wing Commander? Um, well, Wing Commander is actually the 
the only movie where um, the game designer himself um, mm-hmm. made a movie out of his game. Yeah. Um, and just in terms of um, exploring that world and, and trying to find a story, um, I imagine that the process must have been much different because um, you're working with somebody who knows the world that he has created. I mean, he is the creator of that universe of the Karathi and of the characters who are also in the game. Um, I mean, in a way, he, he sort of knows knows his way around better than anybody else. Yeah. Um, and you come from the outside and sort of try and find a story there and, and develop that with him. So, And just... I think that becomes a symbiotic relationship if you, you know, I, I really liked Chris. Uh, and we went out to dinner afterwards, uh, what have you. But And he wanted me to uh, write another movie for him, uh, which was not a sci-fi movie. And I respectfully turned him down uh, because I, I said, I, I really can't see you know, how, we're going, how you're going to get to direct a movie about World War I. But so he is a guy who was very interested in many of the things that I, I like. Uh, and he's a terrific guy and very creative. So that was fun. And yes, he created these characters. And I would say, well, what, you know, what do the Kilrathi want? So I was working much more closely with him in, the, in developing the story. And then I developed a story along the lines of, uh, of what it was, which is, uh, you know, a three act structure with uh, lots of action. And but I was using his world and I was very happy to use his world, which was sort of set in, in it, it really was, uh, you know, World War Two in space. It really was. And if you used if you got that part of it, then you could create a story with these sort of Gregory Peck characters. And I created the wing commander. I made her a woman. But you could see it could have been Gregory Peck in, in 12 o'clock high. But it was her. And she was a woman in the in the 25th century or whatever, and a Devereux character. And we got a great actress to play it. And then you know we had the we had a captain. We got a great actor to play the captain, the general of the fleet. And then all of the lines that they took the job for were taken away from them. So that, that it, it, not all of them, but a, but enough of them that it must have been very frustrating for them. Uh, to, but I enjoyed I enjoyed the collaboration with Chris, and then when it ended, I I thought the film was dead. And when it came back, I said, "Okay, let's go see the film." So it was really one of those disconnects that happened, which is, as I said, it's unfortunate. I, if someone had asked me to come to Luxembourg, uh, I could have. That's what I did for a living. I fixed other people's scripts in television. I've been hired to do that here for years, too. I said, oh, what can you do with this? I've rewritten a great number of scripts. And and I could have fixed, I think, the problems because I had written the original script. And I have other friends who, who've had that experience. I won't mention their names, but they're quite well-known screenwriters. who They get thrown off the project, and then somebody asks them back in. And they mm. kind of fix it uh, as much as they can because the movie strays so far from the, the reason it was bought to begin with that they bring the original writer back. But that didn't happen in this case. And um, and uh, I, I would have done it. I was, again, busy, but I would have done it for, for nothing. I got all the money anyway because when they looked at it, they said, well, aside from messing up the dialogue, it's really kept in script. And that's true. That's really true. It was a very weird situation to be in. Where I'm looking, and I kept pointing out, I said, this is my scene. They just moved it. And uh, the Writers Guild uh, 
panel decided that that was true, and I got written by credit, which I'm sure did not make the. I know it did not make the producer and his pal happy at all. But that they, that that isn't how you well, that isn't how it works in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, you have a guild, and the guild has rules, which is you can't just change things around. Uh, it has to be you know core essential differences. So again, you know, one of my kids got put through college because of this film, but. And I got residual. I still get residuals. I got large residuals for a number of years on it. So people do watch these the movies, even if they're not successful at the box office. Mm. And I read some of the critiques, you, you know, and and I was going, yes, I agree with this. <laughs> they were like, wow, <laughs> this is really bad dialogue, you know. And, and of course, they're blaming me. And I'm going, well, this is not my dialogue. Mm. What can you do? It has my name on it. So obviously they think this is my dialogue, but it's not. And mm. that was that was unfortunate. That's painful. I actually found your original script online. There's a Wing Commander fan site that has oh, a couple of, of different uh, versions of the script and the 1995 and script on, is online. It's my the original version? Yeah, oh, good. October yeah, 1995. Yeah, yeah, this one. Um, yeah, there are only two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are only two. I think this is the first one. Yeah, well, you have some idea what I was up to then. What did you yeah, think? Absolutely. I'm curious. Um, and I think it's a really good script. I think, like you say, I, I, I recognize so much of it, um, mm -hmm. and I don't know why they changed it. I mean, I, I, I recognize the way the characters are set up and the way the characters, you know, interact with each other, um, mm -hmm. like Maniac and Forbes yeah. and, and Blair mm -hmm. and Devereaux. Um, but the relationships are much more interesting because there's, you know, they don't they don't talk so much in cliches about what they're doing and what they're planning to do and, and stuff like that. It's just it's, it's a much more rich movie, I think. Um, I was hired. Well, I wasn't hired. I was hired by Paramount to do another sci-fi movie, which had, had a very long storied history. And they basically said, could you throw out everything that's happened before and write it again? And I did. <laughs> And there was a director involved, and I said, what script of mine did you read? And he read this, and, and, and I, so I said, do you think there was something wrong with that script? And he goes, no, this is why I'm working with you. I think this is a good script. So, you know, I thought it was a good script. Obviously, I'm highly prejudiced, but I, I was very surprised at the, the, the amount of changes that were made. And then when they stopped changing, suddenly I started recognizing my dialogue about halfway through the movie, and I'm going, a little late, you know, you you could have started with it, you know, and then throwing out some key scenes, which I think would have made uh, at the very beginning. You've got to grab people's attention right off the bat with a new, fresh, exciting world. And that's that was partly Chris's fault. He he was really attached to the the opening that you see in the movie, which is all confusion and stuff and radio, con you know, and it's just murky as heck. And you don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. And then you see a debris field <clears throat> and. You saw you saw how I opened it, you know, you know, a little boy in a park, and you realized you're not in a park, you're inside of an asteroid, and that's pure mm. Carl Sagan. That I just took Carl Sagan from you know his his book and said, I want to see this, and then and then when it's attacked, you feel something. You go, oh my god, this whole world has been destroyed. Why? And I think that would have had a much more powerful impact. So story, it visuals, all of it, and it all it's all very important. So, 
Yeah, there's Good. also an element in it which I really liked, which unfortunately is not <laughs> in the movie, where they talk about um, how people age differently um, yeah. because of traveling and light speed. And there's the scene when Devereaux looks at the, the postcard or a digital postcard um, of, um, well, the man that she was in love with, um, but mm -hmm. now he's an, an, an old person who has, an, has a new family um, because she went away on, on a trip uh, for basically just one year. Um, and he is aged like 20 years or I don't know. Um, I've five, six years, something like that. Yeah. No, I love that. And I, I, I love that concept. And of course, again, as a science geek, uh, I was hired to write um, Red Mars. And uh, and again, got into it and talked to uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. We sat down over coffee and chatted about it. And I really love that kind of uh, uh, all of the technical, highly realistic details that you can get into. And the theory of if time, you know, of very heavy objects like a black, you know, a black hole or a quasar, you know, bending time and uh, all of that is fascinating to me. And the multiverses, which is another thing I got into in another movie, uh, which I'm now seeing in, you know, the man in the high castle and things like that. But all of that has always been fascinating to me. And that's the area, era, area of sci-fi when I do write sci-fi, which I almost never do anymore. Uh, I liked because it's based upon something real or at least theoretically real. So that was fun. That was fun. There's one aspect in the script which did make the uh, the, the finished movie, um, which is the whole pilgrim uh, idea, the pilgrims and the pilgrim wars. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that because that wasn't part of the original games. Um, yes, of course. Yeah. I think um, it was introduced with, a, uh, with your story. Mm-hmm. Now, that was in the games, right, as I recall? Or, or did I – the pilgrims were in the games, right? No? Um, no. I think Chris Roberts later picked up on that idea and sort of incorporated oh, so I that, that. Okay. into later I'll... games. But... I mean, yeah, well, maybe I did. Uh, maybe I did. I, I frankly, 25 years on, don't remember. But, yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting and to have, you know, a, a, a civil war and people on different sides of a civil war. I mean, you have a two-hour movie. And I just thought, and as I recall, I glanced at this script again for the first time a couple of days ago, uh, in a long time, a couple of days ago. And yeah, that uh, that's, I'm, I'm actually surprised that I invented that. I thought maybe that was part of the game. But yeah, that is, um, to me, an important part because it creates a history and a backstory and mistrust. And, and one of the main characters, mother was a pilgrim, uh, that sort of thing. So I think it was Christopher Blair's mother was a pilgrim, isn't that? I think that's correct. And uh, that too is is something very very interesting. And I have seen that in other sci-fi movies since then. Uh, that that idea that there was a civil war. Uh, so it's it's you know hard, hardly an, a unique idea. But uh, at the time I came up with it, I thought this is going to be very useful and very helpful. And uh, and we'll see. And there were battles in space that I was very, very fond of, one of which pretty sure got ripped off a little bit by a movie that came out while, while this one was in production. And I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> that whole battle scene where, where he's sitting watching from space and you're seeing this battle happen. And there were, I won't say which movie, but I went, somebody has seen this script. And the irony being, I don't think they saw, thought that the script was going to come out. So it comes out a year later and there's the battle scene all over again. Oh. It, it, it's original. And that one was shot pretty much the way I wrote it. That's what I said. Things started happening 
in the sequence I wanted and the way I wanted and the death of Rosie, you know, crashing on the deck of the plane of the carrier and stuff. Those that's that's pure World War Two drama. You know, mm-hmm. you expect Gregory Peck to walk out and go, OK, back to work or something. <laughs> but at the same time, it's it. I thought it was actually pretty moving. And I'm glad they kept that in the movie for those for the people who were still watching, you know, uh, there were, there were a lot of things that I thought were, were could, you know, they'd, they'd stuck with it from the beginning. It would have had a really an emotional payoff, I think for maniac and, and all of those people. And I think it did anyway, to what, whatever extent. And uh, a lot of people have seen it. Apparently, uh, they, they didn't pay any attention to the critics and they've rented it and seen it. You know, uh, and I'm happy about that, but, Oh well. Mm. <laughs> there are actually two sequels to the to the movie um, written uh, as novels. Yeah, um, as novels. Uh, Peter Taleb um, was he wrote the novelization and he wrote two sequels. So I wanted to ask you if that was um, part of the original idea to have a trilogy or not particularly. By that time, I was out of the loop, uh, and. Mm. I didn't, I have not, I can't really comment. I did not read the, the novelizations and it, they were a little bit at one point. I think the person who wrote the novelization was claiming to have had something to do with writing the script, which, uh, not, not, I mean, he was one of the people who caused the problem to begin with. So I, I didn't bother reading them. Uh, so I don't know. Chris would know that if you, you get to talk to Chris Roberts, say hi to him. I haven't seen him in quite a while, but, uh, I will. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's a good guy, I don't, and he's very very creative, and a very nice man, very nice young. He was a young man then. He's your age now, or my. He, I don't know how old he is. He was twenty nine, twenty five years ago. So figure that out. You know, so he's he's not so young anymore. But uh, uh, yeah, that that whole thing. I mean, I'm a novelist, and if somebody had asked me to write the novelizations, I probably would have. But again, if you're not asked, you and you and I was writing to. One movie I was hired to rewrite and one movie was an original about the time that this movie was coming out. In 1999, I was writing two films, uh, neither of which got made, very unfortunately. But uh, they were they were projects that were taking up all my time. But I would have I would have at least looked at it, see what I could do. You know? hmm. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. Oh, well, as I say, as I say in French, tant pis. <laughs> <Too bad. laughs> but uh, so those are you know two very different circumstances one in which i was closely involved with the creator of the games and i thought that was great and um i as a person who had produced 80 hours of television at that point and had worked with an awful lot of directors many of them pros uh tried to be a mentor is a big word, but I tried to be helpful to Chris mm-hmm. and give advice and suggestions. You know, when he come up with a script suggestion, I say, well, I don't think this will work because of this. We can do it this way, but blah, blah, blah. And I, I do think I convinced him on a number of points. And I do feel bad that we, ha- you know, at the time in 1996, we didn't sit down and go over to Europe or wherever and shoot this movie. And sure, there would have been changes. Sure, there would have been rewrites. But if I had been there as a guy who had producing experience, I think I could have been helpful to him. 
if mm. nothing else, just a rewrite scenes that, well, we can't do this scene. What do, what do we do now at one o'clock in the morning? That comes that happens a lot in television. I literally have had veteran directors go, I don't know what to do now. <laughs> and I would say, well, I think we can do this because the, the writer has the keys to the kingdom. He knows what is mm -hmm. important to the story. And, you know, if we just say this line here and then we're out of the scene and we can all go home and not go into golden time, you know? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I, that, I, I was sort of looking forward to doing that with Chris because he was totally a novice and I thought it would have been fun. And by that, I mean suggestions and maybe spending a little time on the set. I did do that on Don King of Blackbird with a veteran producer, the man who produced uh, Elephant Man and Francis was the director of that film. So I, I certainly didn't have to worry about any of the technical aspects with him, mm -hmm. but I was on the set as a, as a producer, as a co-executive producer, and I was doing a little bit of uh, actor wrangling, if you will, with <laughs> a very famous star who had her own ideas, but... Um, <laughs> But it was it was uh, very useful, I thought, for me to be there. I think when an, a writer can be around and not imposing himself, a lot of actors don't want a, a writer on the set because I, unconsciously because it's it's almost like a doppelganger. This person has the words in his head, and these are the words that I'm oh. saying. I think it bothers them. I think it bothers them. They want to, at, at some point, they want to think, I have created this character. This is me. And I kind of get that. I mean, to be an actor, and I've taken a lot of acting classes, you have to just sort of, you know, get deeply into that character. And if there's a guy walking around who, who created that character, it can be troubling. Yeah. It's interesting. I just, I just had a, a reading of a play, of, of an original play of mine, and I was concerned about sight lines and what have you. So I sat up in the corner so that they, at no point when they were looking out at the audience, because there was an audience, uh, even though they have scripts in their hands, it was highly staged play. And I didn't want them to suddenly look at me and go, I wonder what he thinks. You know, I didn't want that. <laughs> so I would go, I would hide on the sets of the TV shows where people mm -hmm. wouldn't see, but I'd be watching because I was also the producer. And uh, that's that's an experience that I had a little bit of on Mortal Kombat and and a lot of on Duncan and Blackbird and none at all on Wing Commander. Mm -hmm. And I do regret that. Mm. Yeah, I'd just like to add, this isn't a question, this is just um, a thought, mm -hmm. because you mentioned Duncan and Blackbird a couple of times yeah. and I saw that. Um, I saw the oh, film. you did? Um, Good. Yeah, I did. And um, I just I thought it was a really wonderful film. Um, very moving experience i think very intense uh i i don't know what the, what the right word would be if thrilling is the right word because you know it's a very somber piece and it's a very um i mean it isn't a, a thriller or anything uh, but i was very involved with the characters and i found the whole story to be very very moving in a way no, so well, yeah i just you. wanted to to add that well it's a very important film for me um the play that I'm referring to is an, is of a similar genre in that it's extremely intense. It's about an extremely important subject uh, uh, for me, and you know, in this case, suicide. In that case, torture. Yeah, both of which. And I researched Document Blackbird very extensively, and actually, you know, made changes based upon research. Going, oh well, maybe that wouldn't happen this way, and uh, really was deeply involved in it as a play uh, first, and and that was over in Paris. And then when I moved back, I talked to 
a uh, very good producer. And, and he said, I said, well, I have this one play. And I, I said, I just don't think it would make a good movie. It's really very play-like. And he said, no, I think it would make a good movie. You should, you should write it as a movie. <laughs> and I did. And then we, it went to a very interesting process, which is it went to New York uh, with this producer. And, uh, and we were still thinking small feature film, uh, and it, which eventually it kind of, as a backdoor, became a small feature film again. But more importantly, we got really good actors involved and had, I, I don't, I forget who it was at the Wall Street Journal was there. I don't know if it was Joel Morgan, Morgan Stern, but it was somebody up there. And he saw it and he said, you know, you're, I really liked it, blah, 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 but you're tipping who Raul Julia's character is too soon. And that's the kind of thing you can get out of a process, which was a longer process with readings and people, smart people watching it and going, yeah, but now I figured out. And, and I took those lines out. I did, I did the same thing in my play just now. I've taken 11 pages out of a play, which I go, I do not want to tip this. And that's, mm -hmm. that's the kind of structural thing you can get from feedback from a reading, uh, you know, from actors, you know, putting something up on its feed. And interestingly enough, the other thing that happened that I think was very rewarding is the uh, studio executive for Showtime said, I, you know, I sort of feel there aren't enough characters. And I added three more characters to the film, <clears throat> all of which I'm very happy with, you know, very happy with. And if I take that back and make that into a play now, those characters will be in the play. So those are the kind of things that that can happen, you know, to your own vision as you go along. One last subject thing on that, only because um, Cliff Gorman, who has passed away, played Nick the Greek in the film. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you remember the scene where he tries to rage out of the room and he falls down? Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. I had him just rage out of the room. And Nick and I created a real bond during the filming because a certain star was making changes in her lines, which were going to mean that he couldn't say the lines he signed on to do. And he, he called me scribe and he said, we went in and I said, okay, here's how we fix this. And we did, we, we got around that problem so he could say his lines. So he came up to me and he says, you know, you've got everything and you've got the neuropathy in his, uh, in his feet and he can't walk. I would like to fall down. And this is at 10 o'clock at night. And we just happened to have in Keith von Ostrom this really versatile DP who also did his own shots. And he created a little snorkel cam that he used all the time. And I said, Keith, and he goes, yeah, we can do that. And I said, I think this is a brilliant idea. And it ended up in the, you know, and I was the, I could have said, no, absolutely not. But I thought, geez, this is the kind of contribution you just kill for. Mm. When somebody is not trying to make it about me, as Raul Julia once said somewhere else, he says, you know, too many actors wanted to make it about me, my part. And he says, acting is giving. And uh, but to have Cliff Gorman come up with that moment, it first off, I was in tears on the set watching it. Uh, so that's that's some of the best sort of moments of my career as a as a film writer, as a film writer, was somebody else coming up with an idea that expanded upon an idea that I had. Isn't that a cool, that's a cool moment, and he's no longer Absolutely. with us. And I can't tell him that he, he passed on some years ago, but mm. yeah. Yeah, it was a great experience. But again, flying back and forth between Goro and, and <laughs> Paul Julia and Vanessa Redgrave and, and Laura Dern, who's had made a hell of a career for herself, so I'm really happy for her. Uh, 
Scotty Caldwell, who's you know keeps going. She was she had a wonderful small part. They all did. There's a, just a terrific cast in that. So mm. very happy. That one. I'm glad you saw that. I'm delighted you saw that. Most people, you know, have no idea I wrote that. Mm. Except my, you know, I have friends who go, "You wrote Mortal Kombat." <laughs> <laughs> because I, they saw me, I was the guy who wrote, you know, things like Down Came to Blackbird. They never occurred to yeah. me that I, I would sit around. Yeah, it always, and be, you know. always depends on your point of reference, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Mm. What else can I do for you? Um, well, that's about it. And I think your meeting is in about 10 minutes. So, well, no, I have to leave um, from the meeting in about 10 minutes. So, yeah, it's, oh, okay. it's downtown. So I've got to go do that. But so, yeah, uh, I don't... It's been a real pleasure talking with you about something I haven't talked about in God knows how many decades. But so it's kind of well, I guess I talked about it at UCLA a few years ago. And that was the last time. Mm-hmm. And I haven't talked about Wing Commander to anybody. So it's sort wow. of interesting. <laughs> uh, it's interesting to find somebody who actually wrote, you know, there were like five people in Hollywood who read the original script. And uh, some of them gave me jobs. So uh, I you know, didn't mess it up that bad. But but mm-hmm. the whole Mortal Kombat thing, it's just... And there's a whole generation going, no, I would have done it differently. I go, yes, I know you would have. But you didn't. <laughs> you didn't get yeah, that chance. It's always to... easy. <laughs> it's always easy to say, well, I would have done that differently. Because, oh, I, was, I mean, we, we were everybody meek. looks at their stuff and says, there well, was, yeah. There was a guy constructing the set. And I'm walking <laughs> along the set and they're constructing these wonderful caves and statues and stuff. And there was some guy going, well, you know, it's, you know, I was looking at him like, some of us carve statues and some of us write screenplays and they're both creative <laughs> works, but I would not try to do what you're doing. You know, yeah. I would not carve a good statue here. And you might want to leave, you know, professional writing to somebody who's, who's done a little of it. So, you know, but no, but you, you, you just sort of go, okay, that's fine. That's your opinion. Thank you very much. Moving on. <laughs> And um, there are things where critics mean more. And obviously, Don Cameron Blackbird, uh, by and large, I'd say 95% of of it was very positive. So I was very happy about that. And I think it helped. Mm -hmm. The movie did very well in video and what have you. They should have done a DVD. I think it would be still out there. I never understood why they didn't do that. It it Mm -hmm. cut short the life of that interesting film. It was the last film Raoul did. And I think it would have just historically Mm -hmm. very interesting. So that's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, and I think he's amazing in it. There is a, a DVD in Germany, but it doesn't have the English audio track on it, so that's kind of a bummer because it's oh, that's always good. good to hear the actors' voices. Oh, especially him. He is so good. He is a prince among men, A. He really defended the script from depredations, you know. Uh, well, I don't know why we're saying this. And he said, well, hey, let me tell you why we are saying this. <laughs> you you have not perhaps understood what Kevin is doing here. I mean, and I'm like offset with my earphones on, like earphones, you know, go and listening to him defend the script. And I said, OK, we're going to be OK here because he was the big he was the big star on that. And if mm-hmm. he didn't want to do something or he wanted he wanted to do something or he didn't want to do something that happened. And he was totally, totally driven by the script that he had in his hands and he wasn't going to let people mess around with it. And I think that was hugely important to the integrity of the, of the entire film. So, Mm -hmm. but a great guy and a wonderful actor. And he was very sick as you saw. Uh, and we, Mm -hmm. we knew we couldn't insure him. So we're taking a huge risk. Uh, you know, he had stomach cancer and then, uh, we needed reshoots and he had a stroke and we couldn't do the reshoot. So we had to cut a couple of very nice scenes that he's in because they were like airplanes flying overhead and, mm. you know, we, we couldn't do the, and there was nobody, nobody who could even do it, you know, 
uh, dubbing of his voice. I mean, it was impossible. But we needed to reshoot a couple of scenes, and so they just ended up not being in the movie, which is unfortunate. Mm. But it was great. <laughs> 